Okay, so uh, going on a journey you've never been on before is an adventure. A few weeks ago, uh, Lisa and I walked the Pilgrim Way from Rochester to Canterbury. It's not that far. It's only about 50 miles in total. And we walked it over four days. And we'd done all the preparation that you need to do. Routes had been worked out, places to stay each night booked, just enough clothes that would fit in a rucksack, phones charged and loaded with maps. What could possibly go wrong? Well, for one thing, our planning was done in Newton Abbey without the energy-sapping heat of the south of England. Secondly, what looked flat on the map proved to be anything but flat. We were walking the North Downs Way, but I messaged my family at one point to say this is completely wrongly named. It should be the North Ups Way because so far it has never gone down. And the tracks of the North Downs Way proved to be a bit difficult to spot at times. And so the first day's walk was meant to be eight miles, but it turned out to be over 12. But in four days, we made it to Canterbury just in time to see the Lambeth Conference commence and from our hotel in the cathedral gate watch Archbishop Justin in the glory of his golden robes process into the church for the opening ceremony. It was just a journey, but it was also an adventure. And at the beginning of the book of Joshua, the Lord's people were setting out on a journey. Now then, the text says, you and all these people get ready to cross the River Jordan and I will give you every place where you set your foot. They were going on a journey. But the journey was also an adventure because they were going where they had never been before. In fact, they were going where they had previously refused to go. And you in Carmoney are a group of people about to go on a journey you have never been on before. And it will be an adventure for you and for your new minister and his wife and his family. And I imagine that the very last thing any leader needs at a moment like this was to have his predecessor brought up. But in the nine verses we read today from Joshua chapter one, Joshua is mentioned once and Moses is mentioned six times. Seems a bit unfair. Until you realize what the text is doing. It turns out that what is most important about the leadership of Moses is not Moses himself but what the people learned of the Lord in and through his leadership. It wasn't about Moses. It was about the Lord who was with Moses in the work that he did. And to be honest, guys, the last thing Stuart Hawthorne needs in the coming months is to hear my name repeated to him over and over again. But what he will need to hear is about what we learn together about the Lord and his ways. John the Baptist understood well the role of kingdom leadership. He says in John chapter three, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom 
waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. That's what kingdom leadership is about. It's not about the person doing the leading. It's about the person he is leading others to. And that's what we need to remember. What have we learned about the Lord together in these past years when you and I work for him and with him? And in this text, it suggests a number of things that Moses and the people learned together during the 40 years of his leadership. And those same things apply to us. This is what we need to remember. First thing was this. The people through Moses learned about the promise of the Lord. In the days of Moses, the people learned the importance of that promise. It says in Joshua 1, God says, I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. God gave Moses a promise. I'm going to give you this land. He even detailed for him what that land would look like, what its boundaries would be marked on the map. And here's the thing. Not one square centimeter of this vast territory was ever possessed by Moses himself. In 40 years of chaotic wanderings in the wilderness, he and only he kept that vision before his eyes of the land he would never hold, of the place he would never live, but that would become the inheritance of the people of God because God had promised it to them. He saw it. In Deuteronomy 34, we read, Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, opposite Jericho. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. Moses had the promise. He kept the promise before himself and before the people. And although he would never be an inheritor of it himself, he kept them true to that promise. And the promise revealed to Moses was the vision that would guide and motivate the life and work of Joshua. God did not set these people free from bondage to wander aimlessly in the wilderness, but to possess the gift of his promise. And that would take time to be realized. Not until the time of Solomon, hundreds of years after these verses we're reading about now, Hundreds of years later, the time of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel would reach the extent more or less of the boundaries that were defined in the promise given to Moses. And they would only be possessed for a relatively short period of time. But it would take years and years, centuries, before it would come about. And it's the same for us. We are people of a promise. Jesus says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. We are people of the promise. The Israelites, they didn't merit the land. They didn't win the land. It was God's gift to them. And Jesus said, it's the same for us. The Father wills to give you the kingdom. But it's just like the Israelites. We need to go and take that kingdom. We need to possess it. 
That's the call. And that promise that Moses kept before the people guided and motivated the actions of Joshua to actually go out and get that done, to go and take the kingdom that God was giving to them. Why did we erect these buildings? Not because we wanted to make ourselves comfortable, but because we needed somewhere where we could practice hospitality towards the 85,000 people who live in Newton Abbey. And we took on May Street to do exactly the same for the people who live and work in Belfast. And we have done that on both sides. I look around at the faces here this morning. Many of you people weren't here 21 years ago when I became your minister. You're new to Carn Money. Some of you have come to faith during that time. Loads of you have moved into life of this fellowship. Some of you have been elected to serve on the Kirk Session. You weren't here when I came. We have been practicing hospitality. We have been inviting people. And I was preaching in Central last Sunday. There were over 200 adults in May Street last Sunday morning. We have been welcoming people in to the buildings that we possess. But here, listen, folks, it's not finished. There are still loads of people that we need to reach, lives that we need to claim situations and families that need to be changed. We need to do that. We need to take possession of the kingdom God has given us. I remember nights in here at evening worship when we had prayer and worship services. I remember people all around the walls of this building with their hands on the walls, praying out towards the direction that they were facing, asking that God would give us that ground. I remember people sitting in the prayer house when we had it on the Ballyclare Road, looking out of the windows in the upstairs rooms where we prayed to see the buildings and the people that we could see and to pray for those people that we could see and those buildings that we could see. And we haven't finished that job. It's the promise of the Lord. But we need to get out there and take it. Over the summer, I bought a motorbike. I know. You can't say it's a midlife crisis. I'm long past that. 35 years since I had ridden a motorbike, okay? So I bought the bike, and uh, the problem was I had to go and pick it up, obviously. And the only way to get it home was to ride it home. And I hadn't ridden a motorbike for 35, well, once or twice in the meantime, but not very often. I thought, what am I going to do? So I, uh, I went over, got the bike, and... Uh, I bought it over at Charles Hurst. So as you know, at Boucher Road, there's a massive kind of area over there. And there's loads of roads in between the car dealerships. And I thought, well, that's ideal. It'd be really quiet in there. I could just kind of ride around there and familiarize myself with the controls, not do any damage, not hurt me, hurt anybody else. And then I, I, when I felt confident enough, I could go out on the road. So anyway, I got, got the bike and started it up. And horrendous results of trying to move it off. But I got it going eventually, okay. But what I realized was this. I'm in a, a car sales compound, you know? And people are in garages buying cars and they just come out because they're not on the road and they just simply walk like just across the road to where their car's parked. They don't look at this amateur motorcyclist trying to figure out how he works the controls on the motorbike. And, and I was having to do it. I did more emergency stops in five minutes than I hope I need to do for all the rest of my riding career. And eventually I came to the conclusion, do you know what the safest thing for me to do would be? Take the motorbike on the road. It would be an awful lot safer than this. And that's what I did. Because that's what it's designed for. Not really designed for jaunting around car parks. It's meant to be ridden on the road. Jesus said, little flock, the Father desires to give you the kingdom. 
We give it to us for a purpose. We need to get out there and take it. We need to get the bike on the road and ride it. That's what it was for. The first thing that we learned together here, that the people of Israel learned from the life of Moses was that we need to base ourselves on the promises of God. What has he said? What does he offer us? Well, let's get out there and take it in our hands and go do it. The second thing that they, they learned from Moses on their journey together was the importance of the presence of the Lord. One of the outstanding marks of Moses' life was the presence of the Lord. In the tent of meeting that he established where he would go day by day to consult God, the place of which the Scripture says that in that tent the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man talks with his friend. The presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord on the face of Moses. He had to wear a veil when he came out of the tent of meeting because his whole demeanor was altered by the powerful presence of God, and people couldn't bear to look at him, and he had to veil his face so they couldn't see him. And in the prayers of Moses, the request, no, the demand that God stay with them. Unless you go up with us from here, we don't go anywhere. The presence of God. But here's the thing. The presence of God was such an important and significant thing in the ministry of Moses, but it was not something on offer to Moses because of something amazing about him. Because as soon as God comes to call and commission Joshua for the job, what does he say to him? He says to him in verse 5, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wasn't something special about Moses that meant he knew the presence of the Lord because exactly the same offer was made to Joshua, his successor. And we learned about that presence together. We learned to ask for it. We learned to expect it. We learned to love it together in worship. We believed and we claimed the promise. Jesus said, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We believed that. We asked for it, and he showed up. But that presence didn't happen because of me. Five of us took off to Glasgow for an Alpha conference years ago. And at that conference in the morning in Glasgow, told the story so many times. But at that conference in Glasgow, Sandy Miller preached, and at the end of the session that he preached, he said, we're going to pray now. And he got up in front of everybody, this elderly man with white hair. Yeah, I know. It's what I am now. I get it. He gets up before everybody in the church where we were, and he just prays this simple prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. And something happened. It wasn't hyped up. There was no music playing in the background. He just prayed that prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Something happened. I've got to explain to you how dramatic this was, okay? Prayer time went on for maybe half an hour, 45. I can't remember how long. But after that, we got lunch. And lunch was a bag full of sandwiches and crisps and an apple and various other bits and pieces and a bottle of water. And the five of us went outside the church. There was a small park beside the church with a pond in the middle of it with ducks swimming in the pond. And we sat down on seats around the pond. And for 45 minutes... 
Not a single person spoke. Now, if I told you who was there, you wouldn't believe what I just said. For 45 minutes, not a single person spoke. And then somebody, and I can't remember which one of the five it was, said, John, what just happened in there? This man prayed a simple prayer. It was nothing to do with Sandy, however amazing a person Sandy Miller is. Absolutely nothing to do with him. He asked the Holy Spirit to come, and the Holy Spirit came. It changed our lives, changed how we ran the Alpha Course, changed everything about the direction of that outreach. Made it richer, fuller, deeper. Because we asked, and God came. And now we need to continue that prayer for a new ministry. Because we learned that the presence of the Lord is what we need above everything else. And we need to pray that for Stuart and for the ministry and for the leadership that he's going to give you guys and that you're going to join with him in. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to come because he sure can't do it on his own. I met him a couple weeks ago and he said to me, he felt so inadequate. I said, that's good because you are. Nobody's adequate for this job. Nobody. But that doesn't matter because it didn't depend on your adequacy. It depends on that prayer. Come Holy Spirit. And if we pray that for him and for his leadership and for his fellowship with us here, then there is no limit to what can happen because it's the presence of God that's the important thing. I was listening to a sermon preached by uh, Bill Johnson recently. His wife, Benny, died over the summer quite after a very short illness. And uh, he preached a sermon in, in church about that. And it's, it's on the internet. You can watch it for yourselves. And uh, in the course of the sermon, he talked about how he felt. And the pain of his loss is so obvious on his face if you, if you watch him preach. And he talks about it. And he said that one of the things that people often say about bereavement is this. You know, if only I could understand why. You know, if only God could explain to me why I lost my spouse in this way at this time. What sense does this make? If I knew that, if I understood that, then it would be better. And Bill Johnson said, how would that make it better? Wouldn't take the pain away. Wouldn't change the loss. How would it make it better? The only thing that could make it better is the presence of the Lord. It's the presence of the Lord that matters. We don't need to understand everything. We don't have to have the answers for everyone. We just need to have him with us and upon the ministry and the leadership that you're about to welcome to your midst. And if he is here, then there's no limit to what we can do because he's the one who says, without me, you can do nothing. Through Moses, the people learned that they needed the vision of the promise of the Lord. They needed to get out there and do what the promise said. They learned about the presence of the Lord, that that was more important than anything else. And thirdly and lastly, they learned that seeking Him only works when we seek him in his way. The third thing they learned about from Moses was the pathways of the Lord. God says to Joshua, be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. There is a way to do church. 
only one way, not multiple ways. There are multiple styles, different people, different personalities, different projects and initiatives and all the rest of it that we can take, but there's actually only one way to do church. And it boils down to two loves. First of all, it entails a love for people. Paul says, why do we do what we do? We go through all this pain and suffering and worry and concern and burn so much energy and spend so much time. Why do we do what we do? For Christ's love compels us to, Corinthians 5.14. That's the reason we do this, because the love of Christ in our hearts has caused us to love people. And that's the thing. The Father's heart has to inform our mission. We have to understand why we're doing this. If I had the courage, I would get a tattoo. And the tattoo would be eight words from the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. Every nation, every tribe, every race, every tongue. I'd have it here on my arm where I could see it every day. Every nation, every tribe every race, every tongue. That is the measure of the Father's heart and that is the measure of how we do church. There should never be a person, whoever they are or whatever they come from, who should ever be unwelcome through that door because the Father's heart is for every nation, every tribe, every race, every tongue. Why is there not greater diversity among us? We are monochrome. White, Western, you know. We are monochrome when the love of the Father is a coat of many colors. And, and it's, it's all over us all the time. Often, we don't even see it. I, I was speaking at the, at the Bangor Missionary Convention yesterday morning, and... Uh, I spoke at one of the main sessions and then did a Q&A thing in a seminar myself and, a, and an American missionary. He was a real missionary. I, obviously, I'm not, but I did my best to pretend. And uh, so we were there and we got asked a load of questions. Do you know what the subject of that session was? It was mission and family. He, the American sitting beside me, was a married man. His wife was there. Do you think she knew something about mission and family? Do you imagine that she might actually have known more about it than he did? But she wasn't on the platform answering the questions. Monochrome, two 68-year-old men. Monochrome. And we're so often like that, aren't we? But the measure of the Father's love is different. It's a coat of many colors. And we need to be more diverse. Why are we not more diverse? Why are there not so many other people from different cultures and different nations and different languages wanting to come and worship God with us? The love of people. That's the first thing that you need to have if you want to do church. The other love is unbridled love for the Lord himself. Mark records the story of the anointing at Bethany, which caused so much offense to everyone in the room. This woman who came with this expensive jar of perfume that was worth a year's salary. And they didn't have screw-top bottles in those days or, you know, 
nice uh, kind of things that you press the top and it squirts out just enough so that you can keep some of it for another day. It was a sealed container. Once you broke it, that was it. You had no option. Once it was broken, you had poured all out. And she broke the container. She poured out its contents worth a year's wages, thousands and thousands of pounds in today's money. She poured it all out. And everyone in the room was offended. That could have been sold. The money could have been given to the poor. What a massive waste it is. The only one in the room who wasn't offended was Jesus. And Jesus said of that woman, what he said of no man anywhere in the Gospels, truly I tell you, wherever the Gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In his sermon that I mentioned a moment or two, Bill Johnson says that what Jesus was doing here, Jesus was noting the high water mark of love for Christ in the life of this woman and the broken jar of perfume. Wherever the gospel is spoken, this woman's story will be told. And here's the other thing. He also points out in that sermon that when she left the house that day, she smelled just like Jesus. If it's on her hair, on her hands, all over her clothes, and when she left the room that day, she smelled just like him. That love for the Lord that helps us to pour out a sacrifice of worship to him leaves us smelling like him, makes us influential in the world in which we live. Because you can only do church in one way. The only way you can do it is with absolute love for people, whoever they are, wherever they come from. A passion for the full diversity of creation to be expressed in the fellowship of our church. And you can only do it if you're prepared to break the bottle and pour out the perfume and leave smelling like him. The promise, the presence and the pathways of God. Whatever we learned of these things together is what your new minister needs to know about. He does not need to know about me. Fortunately, unlike Moses, I am not dead. But you won't see me here, okay, unless Stuart needs or wants my help. Please welcome him like you welcome me. And please don't ask him to have me take part in weddings and funerals, okay? Because what's he going to say? I know that's going to disappoint so many of you who thought I was going to do your funeral. So I apologize about that in advance, all right? And I know several of you already have it booked. I know that, but I will not now be able to do it, okay? Your new minister will be really good, and he will do it for you, and you will be well served through him. Don't ask him about that, because that's embarrassing and difficult. Do I miss you? Absolutely. Is this fellowship my spiritual home? Of course it is. But for a season, I must be absent so a new adventure can begin. I met your minister a couple of weeks ago. I told him you're amazing. You better not let me down. I 
told him the leadership is great and never fight with you. Told him the people are always willing to volunteer for everything. They're always up for new things. They love all this worship at the front. Nobody ever complains about it. I told him all those things. And I said, you're coming to heaven on earth. So don't let me down, all right? Welcome him and his wife Caroline and their kids. Get behind them. See what adventures you can cook up together. Get out of this building and go do some damage in Jesus' name. And the person who will be most pleased and delighted lives in five Carnhill Gardens. A journey to a place you've never been before is an adventure. There lies before this fellowship now an amazing adventure. Let's commit ourselves to it now.